seated. In the fall of 2011, going back a little bit, when we were first venturing out and following Jesus and becoming a new expression of the church in San Antonio, I had an idea. Uh, as a way to be together, to cast vision for what it means to be the church and to build unity for our new church plan, I asked everybody to come to an eight-week, one-hour-long course before what was then our 5.30 p.m. worship gathering. I'm saying that, and there's a couple people in the room that are going, ooh. <laughs> the idea was to have everyone participate in the class and then conclude after eight weeks with a celebration of foundational membership or founding membership. And some people really appreciated it because it provided clarity and direction. Some people weren't ready for it because they were still trying to decide whether or not they were going to be a part of this new church plant. And some people really didn't like it because they felt that I was leaving people behind. And they let me know. They really let me know. And it was the kind of situation that every leader beats themselves up for. Trying to be helpful, but unintentionally being hurtful. Trying to facilitate unity, but inadvertently causing conflict. It was a Peter moment for me. In my zeal for Jesus, I got ahead of Jesus. And I ended up stepping in it, so to speak. And it all came to a head at the conclusion of the final class. And so afterward, upstairs, during the worship gathering, rather than celebrate and commission the founding members of Grace, I stood before the congregation and publicly apologized. That was my sermon for the day. This morning we look at what was one of the first and most intense conflicts in the early church. It was like a circus fire. Why? Because it was intense. You got it. Two prominent, two prominent apostolic leaders come face to face in open and public conflict with one another over the identity and direction of the church. Here's the big idea. As followers of Jesus, the gospel is meant to motivate and influence how we relate not only to God, but to one another. So what we believe with the help of the Holy Spirit is meant to affect how we behave. And one thing, more than anything else, can cause us to stumble in this area. And that one thing is fear. And in particular, what the Bible calls the fear of man. And that's the heart of this passage this morning. After all, remember what Paul says. If we're still trying to win the approval of people, 
we're not being servants of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for how when you think of us, you think of us in Christ. And like him, you love us. In him, we are approved. And we are pleasing to you. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word and that you would help us to hear your voice and experience your love and acceptance and approval and pleasure in Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we foster a healthy fear of God and avoid an unhealthy fear of people. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16. In your blue Bible, that's on page 973. The conflict is between Paul and Peter. And this makes it especially tough because we like them both, right? Anybody want to pick sides? It's hard to do. Both Paul and Peter are devoted followers of Jesus. They're both committed men of God. They know intimately what it means to experience the forgiveness of Christ. They've experienced powerfully what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit and miraculously what it's like to continue Jesus' mission and ministry. Both are deeply respected for their contribution to the spread of the gospel in the early church. Peter And Paul believed and preached the same gospel. And yet here, the Apostle Paul publicly opposes the Apostle Peter with a blatant rebuke. Why? Kind of, I don't know, it it kind of makes us in conflict, you know? Why? Because Peter had withdrawn and separated himself from Gentile Christian believers and would no longer eat with them. Hmm. Does that seem like a big deal to you? Maybe not at first. Let's unpack it a little bit. And I want to propose that Paul's talking more than just about eating. Peter withdraws and separates himself from Gentile Christian believers believers and would no longer experience table fellowship with them. And why this is so significant is because this behavior is a contradiction to the truth of the gospel. It's inconsistent with what Peter believed. Let me remind you the story. Let's take a little romp through... uh, the book of Acts. The context here is in Acts 10 and 11. If you want to follow that in your blue Bibles, that's on page 918-ish. You remember what happens. Paul saw a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven and its four corners. It contained an assortment of unclean animals. And he heard a voice saying to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And when Peter objected to the voice, the voice went on to say, do not call anything impure that God has made pure. The vision happened three times for emphasis. Apparently, it was important. And Peter realized that God wasn't just speaking to him about 
food. He was speaking to him about more than just food. We see this in Acts 10, particularly verses 34 and 36. Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And this vision, as you remember, moved Peter to obey the Spirit's leading and travel to the house of a Gentile believer named Cornelius. LB, right there. Cornelius. You remember what happened? In Cornelius' house, a Gentile unbeliever's house, Peter preached the gospel. The whole household believed. Everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter baptized them all, welcoming them into the family of God. And in Acts 11 and 17, reflecting on this moment, Peter says, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Peter knows that God shows no partiality, that the gospel is for everyone, that God cleans and purifies Everyone who confesses their sin and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter knows this. This is the heart of the gospel. He believes it. He preaches it. Okay, turn back to Galatians 2, page 973. Look at verse 12. When Peter first arrived in Antioch, he ate with the Gentile believers. Makes sense, right? Who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. What is going on? Peter was in the habit of eating his meals with Gentile believers. His Jewish prejudices had been overcome by the gospel. He didn't consider himself above the Gentiles. He didn't consider them less than or unclean. And he no longer considered that eating with them would defile him in any way. Peter, a Jewish Christian, enjoyed table fellowship with the believers in Antioch who were Gentile Christians. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Then one day, a group arrived from Jerusalem. They were all Jewish Christians and devout Pharisees. We see this in Acts 15, verses 1 and 5. Let me just read it to you. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, quote, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved, end quote. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, quote, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses, end quote. Woo. It's heating up in Antioch. The Jewish Christians from Jerusalem begin to teach their peers to look down on the Gentile Christians as inferior, making a, hear this, making a cultural difference more important than gospel unity. It was racial pride. 
even though this was a contradiction to the gospel, the argument deceived and won over Peter. And sadly, by denying the gospel, Peter was denying Jesus again. So Paul confronts him on it, gently and in love, but like a crowing rooster. Look at verses 14 and 16. Paul says, When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make the Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. All right, let's unwind that a little bit. Paul doesn't primarily see his fellow apostles' behavior as rude or ill-mannered or unwelcoming. Fundamentally, he sees that Peter, verse 14, is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. He's not practicing what he preached. He's not putting into practice what he believes. Peter's become legalistic. Legalism, ugh, shake your head like that, ugh. Legalism is when we look to something besides Jesus to make ourselves acceptable and clean before God. And so Paul is saying to Peter, in so many words, Pete, God doesn't have fellowship with us on the basis of our race, our nation, or our culture. So how can we have fellowship with one another on the basis of our race and nature and culture? Cock-a-doodle-doo. Legalism is always rooted in pride and fear. And it always results in exclusion and strife. Legalism forgets the grace of God and fails to bring our relationships in line with the grace of God. And without the gospel, without the grace of God, our hearts have to manufacture approval and worth by comparing ourselves to others. But it all changes in Christ. With the gospel, in Christ, our hearts can rest in peace and security because we are accepted and made worthy, not by what we do, but by who we belong to. We belong to God in Christ. Now, it feels like that rooster crows in my heart a lot. I consistently and constantly 
need to be reminded of the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit. I constantly need to hear and tell myself the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ, that Jesus makes us one as he and the Father are one. And, oh, and, and this oneness that we have with God and with one another in the Spirit supersedes every preference, every style, and every cultural distinctive that we might otherwise have. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the welcome and the grace that we've received in Christ is not just meant for us. It transforms us and gives us the desire and the ability to hold out that grace, that welcome, that acceptance to one another. Peter knows this. So why does he behave inconsistently? And this is the super important question and the heart of this passage. And the answer is both simple and shocking. Go back and look at verse 12. The NIV says it this way. Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The New Living Translation says it this way. Peter was afraid of criticism. Peter acted in a manner inconsistent with the gospel because he wants the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem to like him, not criticize him. He's afraid of not being liked by a small peer pressure group who didn't fully understand the gospel, but had a lot of power and influence. So he caves. The same Peter who denied Jesus for fear of what the Jewish leaders might do to him denies Jesus again for the fear of what the Jewish Christian leaders might do to him. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Peter has an awe problem, A-W-E. He didn't fear God in a, God is with me and if I try to win the approval of men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ, so I won't be ashamed of the gospel, but make a stand and do the right thing, trusting and depending on God kind of way. Have you ever been there? That rooster crows in my heart so much more than I wish it did. And some people read this and seize the opportunity to throw Peter under the bus. Not me, man. I read this and experience deep conviction. I actually empathize with Peter here. Gospel community is messy. Some people appreciate and encourage you. Some assign themselves to be your critics. 
Some are loyal and supportive. Some complain and undermine. Some confront with truth and grace. Some avoid and gossip and triangulate. Some jump in and get involved. Some maintain a consumer mentality. Community is messy. And in the middle of it, particular people who are influential and vocal will loom larger than they should in your thoughts and motives. And rather than living in grateful response to the love and the approval and the delight that God has for you, you'll be tempted to win their love and their approval and their delight instead. I wish I could say that I'm totally free of this fear, but I'm not. I'm a mess. How about you? Gospel community is messy because we're a mess. And so it's vital that as we follow Jesus with grace, as we engage and move deeper into relationship with Christ and with one another as a gospel community, it's vital that we keep people in the right place in our heart. On the one hand, we can't allow a fear of people to close us off from different perspectives. On the other hand, we can't allow different perspectives to have more power and influence in our lives than the gospel. That's the tension where we encounter Christ in one another. The goal is to maintain soft hearts toward one another. The goal is to, remain, is to maintain soft hearts toward everyone, toward those who love and support us well, and toward those who hurt and frustrate us the most. This is how the Apostle Paul did it. Look, look at his response. I mean, knowing my mess makes me appreciate how Paul responds to Peter. This is so good. Peter didn't say, Peter, sorry, Paul didn't say, Peter, you're breaking the rules, man. Paul said, Peter, you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten who you are and to whom you belong. And so you're not extending your own gracious welcome in Christ to everyone else. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Paul reminded Peter of the gospel. He realigns him to the truth that his worth, his acceptance, is because of what Christ has done, not anything that he does or doesn't do. Paul was saying, Peter, you don't need the love and approval and delight from these men because you already have it in Christ. Don't mix that up. I was so grateful for this. Paul doesn't motivate Peter with guilt. Paul motivates Peter with grace. By asking a question, 
Peter, remember the love and acceptance God has showered on you in Christ? What does living out God's grace look like in this situation? How do you love the circumcision group in a manner consistent with how Christ loves you? That's what Paul's doing with Peter. Speaking the truth in love. Showing an immeasurable amount of grace to realign Peter with who he is based on what Christ has done for him. And so, as it was for Peter, so it is for me, so it is for us today. Y'all, this, this passage is so helpful. It's so relevant. It helps us see how we resist the cultural and peer pressure of our day. We don't try to win the approval of people, but of God. Because if we are still trying to win the approval of people, we'll cease to become servants of Christ. We align our behavior with our belief in the gospel. What we believe with the help of the Holy Spirit gives us the desire and the ability to do what pleases God. And because God sees us in the same way he sees his son Jesus, we can enjoy God's love and we can rest in the assurance of his delight and approval of us and that sets us free from needing to make the love and acceptance and approval of others our primary goal. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. Christ has set us free so that we'll live accordingly. It's free. Free from the approval of people. Free from the fear of man. Because of who we are in Christ based on what he has done for us, not what we do. So what does it look like to put this into practice this week? A couple of, um, a couple of action steps that I've been working on recently and uh, hope maybe they will be helpful in encouraging to you. How do we cultivate a healthy fear of God and avoid an unhealthy fear of man, of people? This is, this is really important because the fear of man is a daily battle that every one of us is called to fight. And there are times when, when fear silences us when we need to speak and causes us to speak when we should remain silent. And there are times when fear causes us to do things we shouldn't do and keeps us from doing the things that we are called to do. This is the battle for our hearts each and every day. And when that battle is motivated by our brokenness, by our hurt, by our sin, we're going to be in bondage. But when that battle is motivated by the Holy Spirit and who we are in Christ, in Christ in us, in Christ through us, then we're going to be free. We're going to be free. Not just to put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and wield the sword of the Spirit and hold up the shield of faith with sandals shod with the gospel, but to wear it and stand firm. 
it's vital to ask, how do we cultivate a healthy fear of God and avoid a healthy fear of people? I'm just going to encourage you to join me in doing two things. And the first is this. Humble yourself before the Lord. A fear of man is never defeated by denying its existence in your heart. Own your fear and then run to the only one who's able to defeat it. Confess that you don't always remember God's presence, his love, his approval, and his delight. Admit that you often love your own comfort more than you love God. And that there are moments when you're more in awe of people than you are in awe of him. And then humble yourselves before the Lord and rest in the sure and certain assurance of his acceptance and forgiveness, of his delight, of his approval, of his presence in your life. In 1 John, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John writes it this way. The love of God in Christ casts out all fear. The love of God in Christ casts out all fear. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, when we see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, the love of Christ fills our hearts to overflowing, not only casting out our fear, but giving us the courage and the power to cast out the fear of others. Second, Meditate on God, not your circumstances. So many difficult burdens can distract you. There are so many messy relationships, unfinished conversations, unforgiveness, unclear pathways to provision, unknown conclusions. So it's vital to always be aware of what is capturing the thoughts and meditations of your heart. In his book, Dangerous Calling, Pastor Paul Tripp says this, Consider your circumstances, but meditate upon the Lord. As you meditate on God, you'll grow stronger in your faith even before your circumstances change. Meditating on your circumstances will leave you in awe of your circumstances. They will grow larger and you will feel smaller and your vision of God will be clouded. But if you meditate on the Lord, you will be in greater awe of his presence, power, faithfulness, and grace. And the situation will seem smaller and you'll live with greater confidence even if nothing has changed. Gospel community is moved by the Spirit of God within us, giving us the grace to humble ourselves before the Lord, giving us the faith to set the affection of our hearts on Him, and helping us to remember that there's no fear 
in the love of God in Christ. Because the love of God in Christ casts out all fear. So, four questions to think upon this week. In what area of your life have you been increasingly walking in line with the gospel over the past month? Or over the past year? Second, are there people in the church you haven't been eating with because they're not like you? What's underneath that attitude? Third, how could you motivate yourself and other Christians? Or how could you be available to the Holy Spirit to motivate you less with guilt and more with grace-based, gospel-centered questions. Fourth and finally, what does gospel accountability look like in your life? Who are you asking to point out your blind spots to help you align your life and behavior with Jesus and the good news of the gospel? <clears throat> I'll put those... Uh, questions on the website this afternoon if that's helpful to you. Here's what I want to do. Um, I want to end in uh, a responsive prayer. Over Fourth of July weekend, my mother-in-law shared this prayer with me. Not because she thought I needed it, but I do. But because she's awesome and she prays for me uh, and she this has been a blessing to her and she wanted it to be a blessing to me and it's been a blessing to me and so I hope it's a blessing to us. Uh, this is called the Litany of Trust and it's written uh, by Sister Fatista Maria Pia who is uh, in the order of the Sisters of Life. And uh, this uh, Litany of Trust is going to be on the screen. Let's pray this together. From our hearts to the Lord. From the belief that I have to earn your love, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear that I am unlovable, deliver me, Jesus. From the false security that I have what it takes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear that trusting you will leave me more destitute, Deliver me, Jesus. From all suspicion of your words and promises, deliver me, Jesus. From the rebellion against childlike dependency on you, deliver me, Jesus. From refusals and reluctances in accepting your will, deliver me, Jesus. From anxiety about the future, deliver me, Jesus. From resentment or excessive preoccupation with the past, deliver me, Jesus. From restless self-seeking in the present moment, deliver me, Jesus. From disbelief in your love and presence, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being asked to give more than I have, deliver me, Jesus. From the belief that my life has no meaning or worth, Deliver me, Jesus. 
from the fear of what love demands. Deliver me, Jesus, from discouragement. Deliver me, Jesus, that you are continually holding me, sustaining me, and loving me. Jesus, I trust you. That your love goes deeper than my sins and failings and transforms me. Jesus, I trust in you. That not knowing what tomorrow brings is an invitation to lean on you. Jesus, I trust in you. That you are with me in my suffering. Jesus, I trust in you. That my suffering, united to your own, will bear fruit in this life and the next. Jesus, I trust in you. That you will not leave me orphan. That you are present in your church. Jesus, I trust in you. That your plan is better than anything else. Jesus, I trust in you. That you always hear me and in your goodness always respond to me. Jesus, I trust in you. That you give me the grace to accept forgiveness and to forgive others. Jesus, I trust in you. That you give me all the strength I need for what is asked. Jesus, I trust in you. That my life is a gift. Jesus, I trust in you. That you will teach me to trust you. Jesus, I trust in you. That you are my Lord and my God. Jesus, I trust in you. That I am your beloved one. Jesus, I trust in you. As we come to the table this morning, we don't presume to come to Jesus trusting in our own righteousness, but in his abundant and great mercy. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember that our bodies have been made clean by his body, and our souls have been purified through his blood that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us.